Hello, and welcome to Teaching American History's Saturday Webinar, a webinar and podcast series that explores controversies of American history. Today, we are joined by our host, Jason Stevens of Ashland University, and panelists Adam Seagrave of Arizona State University and Jason Jividen of St. Vincent's College. In honor of Constitution Day, we've chosen to focus this episode on the relationship between slavery and the Constitution. Join us as we explore the question, is the U.S. Constitution a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery document? Hello and welcome. Happy Constitution Day. My name is Jason Stevens. I'm Assistant Professor of Political Science and History at Ashland University, and I want to welcome all of you here today with us. Welcome to our uh, September episode of this year's Saturday webinar series, American Controversies. By bringing together thoughtful scholars with differing points of view, we hope to have a discussion, a conversation about historically important issues that still resonate in the current classroom. We encourage all of you joining us today. I see people are still filtering in. Uh, we invite all of you today to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box. Uh, not, the, not the chat box, but the Q&A box. Um, please submit any questions you have there for, for our panelists. We'll try to get to uh, as many as possible uh, in the next uh, hour and, and 15 minutes or so. Uh, within the next week, uh, you will receive an email with links for further reading, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. Uh, in the registration form, we have already linked to the speeches, the letters, the other documents and writings that we're using uh, as part of today's conversation. Many of them are also available at the Teaching American History's extensive document database located at tah.org or in our core document collection. Today, we will be discussing, is the Constitution an anti-slavery or a pro-slavery document? A very important question for all days, but especially on this day, Constitution Day. Joining me on our panel is Adam Seagrave. He is an Associate Director and Associate Professor in the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Adam, welcome. Uh, good to see you again. Also, uh, our old friend uh, Jason Jividen is here. Uh, he is an associate professor of politics in the McKenna School of Business, Economics, and Government at St. Vincent College. Uh, both are also faculty members in Ashland University's master's program in American history and government. They've been teaching in that program a long time. They are fantastic professors. I've seen them in the classroom. Their students just love taking classes from these two gentlemen. We are so happy and lucky to have them with us today to be part of uh, this conversation. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Likewise. Now, before we get started, um, all of our uh, attendees, I see uh, the number still going up. Many people still, uh, still joining us. Before we get started, we're going to take just a few minutes. Um, could all of you joining us please take just a moment or two uh, to answer the two questions that should now pop up on your screen. Our staff at TAH is trying to get a sense of what type of professional development we should offer to our webinar participants. And so your feedback will really help us determine how to best serve our uh, teacher audience. 
Uh, so please take a, a few minutes uh, to complete this survey and uh, we'll, uh, we'll go silence in the meantime, we'll come back in, in just a couple. Okay, uh, for those of you still entering the room, please make sure you uh, fill out those questions on the survey on your screen. Um, and I think you'll also have another opportunity at the end of the program to do that as well. As you continue to do that, we're gonna get the conversation rolling here. Uh, so uh, gentlemen, again, thank you for being here. Uh, we're gonna get the, uh, let's just get the ball rolling on this very important question for Constitution Day. Is the Constitution a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery document? So. Just you know, a broad opening question. Um, why is this such an important question for teachers and students, but really all Americans to, to think about, to think seriously about? Why is this a question worthy of our attention? And any Well, I'll just I'll just get us started, and I'm sure Adam has a lot to, to offer here. Um, I'll just start with a sort of an anecdote. I you know, we're college educated people. I, I, you know, through my education as a young person, especially into taking history and politics courses um, as an undergraduate, I, I remember very distinctly, especially in, in educational institutions, uh, a notion that there, there's something about the American founding, the U.S. Constitution, because of what was perceived as its compromises with slavery, um, that rendered those institutions um, problematic and perhaps even um, not choice worthy. And so I think when we're talking on Constitution Day about inheriting institutions, perhaps maintaining or, or, or passing on institutions, um, we have to think about what it is that we're maintaining. And if there's, a, if there's an argument out there that the institutions we're maintaining are, are, are fundamentally 
um, problematic or even rotten to the core because of a compromise with a clearly evil institution. Um, what does that mean for us as educators? What does that mean for us as citizens? How should we understand those institutions? And if we think they are choice worthy, we have to understand what those compromises were. If we think they're not choice worthy, we have to understand exactly what it is we're critiquing. And so I think to, to understand the character of those institutions, especially on a day like this, we need to sort of get right with the history. Um, what is the relationship between the Constitution and slavery? We have to have a, a clear-eyed vision of that before we can even think about preservation or change or really even criticism. And so I would say in my experience, um, the more that I read the Constitution, the more I read things like Madison's notes on the convention, the more I read some of the issues surrounding the 1850s and the coming of the Civil War, the more I read issues surrounding the Civil Rights Movement, I came to understand that Constitution better. And I think, at the risk of sounding arrogant, just have a, a bit of a more nuanced view at some of the questions that are on the table. And as an educator, that's all I would want, just to help to bring um, those questions to students and help us seek out the answers to them. So I, I think it's a crucial question because at the end of the day, we are uh, we're human beings and citizens, and there are duties incumbent on us in both those roles. And that requires us to think pretty seriously about, about slavery in the Constitution. But Adam, I don't know what you'd like yeah. to suggest there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with all of that. I think those are really good points. Um, yeah, I would also say that I think the Constitution is bound up with American identity in so many ways. It's really at, at the core of, of American identity. And um, so I think how we think of ourselves as Americans, right? Do we take pride in that? Um, how do we reflect upon that, upon what it means to be an American? I think that uh, what we think of the Constitution is a big part of that. So how we assess its value with respect to slavery. Um, and I think if, uh, you know, the American experiment in self-government, right, its importance for humanity, if we're going to value that, I think it really makes a big difference uh, whether slavery and racism were, so to speak, baked in to the original founding principles and documents um, that define the American experiment in many ways. So, um, so I think the stakes are, are really, really huge um, because it, slavery was so bad, right? Uh, so it's, it's not as if this is a, a minor uh, evil we're talking about. It's, it's a really, really uh, serious, serious injustice and evil and so if it was actually uh, supported or endorsed in the document that perhaps more than any other, along with the Declaration of Independence, defines our identity as Americans and defines the meaning of the American experiment for humanity, uh, then that's a really, really serious issue. Um, so, you know, I mean, it goes back to uh, what Hamilton said in Federalist One and uh, what John Winthrop said on, on the Arbella that uh, if America is going to be have some kind of meaning for humanity and some kind of positive contribution to humanity, it's vitally important that we uh, that we assess accurately and appreciate what's of value in the American founding. So, uh, answering this question about the Constitution, I think, is a really crucial part of that. Yeah, those are all really, really good points. Um, Right, especially to keep in mind on this, the, the 235th anniversary of the Constitution, if this is a, a pro-slavery document, if slavery is, was baked into it from the beginning, so to speak, then, then why continue to celebrate it? So maybe we can come to better understand America, better understand the Constitution, and, and why Constitution Day is a day worth celebrating um, over the, the, the course of this webinar. We're already getting several very interesting questions coming in from, from members of our audience. So I I'd like to get started. In fact, one, one question uh, here, I think, will be a, a great way to sort of dive into the text that we've selected, especially uh, the Constitution itself. So one of our participants asked, 
certainly the three-fifths clause is dehumanizing, uh, but was it also an attempt to limit the influence of the Southern states in the House of Representatives? That's the question. So why don't we remind ourselves of what the three-fifths clause says? So I'll just, I'll just read here directly from the, the, from the Constitution, and then we want to consider, right, is this uh, dehumanizing? Is this an endorsement of slavery? Is this a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery clause? So here's what uh, the three-fifths clause says in Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. Um, Jason, Adam, can you help us understand that? Adam, you wanna, you wanna get started there? Sure, yeah. So yeah, the question, the question is, is a good one, right? So I, on uh, the three-fifths clause, I, I think of it in terms of it's, it's denotation or it's factual meaning and it's sort of, uh, it's meaning as a compromise that was worked out between delegates of the Constitutional Convention. So kind of the technical meaning of the clause and then also the connotation or the symbolism of it, right? With the, the three-fifths being dehumanizing uh, to people who were counted as three-fifths, right? Primarily, we're talking about African-American um, uh, slaves at the time. So, um, so I think thinking of it in those two ways, um, that uh, first of all, it's it's significant to note in this clause, as in the others in the Constitution, that um, enslaved African Americans are referred to as persons, right? Uh, and that that's something that Doug, Frederick Douglass and Lincoln, of course, make a lot of, and I think make good arguments regarding that. That that that's a really crucial point um, that they're referred to as persons. I think that in terms of the the number itself and the, the compromise that was reached, I mean, that number was in existence before the Constitutional Convention uh, was in place under the Articles of Confederation. Um, so the, the debate uh, was not, well, of course, it was between Northern delegates who wanted to, to not count enslaved people at all, right, count them as zero, um, and Southern delegates who wanted to count them as one. Um, so look, looked at that way, and I think historically as well, uh, the Three-Fifths Clause was, was certainly supportive of the Southern slaveholding interest and power in Congress. I think it was uh, net positive in many ways for the South. So, um, so I think practically speaking, it was, it was a victory in, in some ways for the Southern, uh, Southern delegates and Southern states, I would say. Um, and of course the symbolism has been important in, in American history, but having that, uh, that reference to persons in there, I think is absolutely crucial as well and goes on the other side uh, to, to be a victory for anti-slavery uh, anti-slavery delegates in the Constitution. Yeah, I, I just add a couple of things. I think all of this is really well said. I think it's important to note that this, this clause is often, I think, misunderstood sometimes by politicians, by rhetoricians, even by, by teachers, textbooks. Um, it's really important to note that that three-fifths number pre was pre-existing. Was, there was a proposed amendment to the Articles of Confederation on taxation that's where the ratio came from. It wasn't pulled out of, of thin air. They were, in some ways, it was seen as being a sort of um, moderating influence that they're, we're using something we'd already talked about, the kind of, I don't know what other word to use, but the, the, the moderating. But it's important, I think, for especially for students and those of us who are teachers to, to impress upon students that we're talking about. Rarely uh, do you hear folks, so in fact, you don't see it at all, say in Madison's notes or in ratification debates, anyone referring to slaves as three-fifths of a human being. 
um, you hear people sort of make that mistake in talking about this clause. No person in their right mind would ever say you're either a human being or you're not. What they're talking about is three-fifths of the total slave population for purposes of representation and direct taxes. And so it is, it is a, a compromise. I think Adam's exactly correct to say that it um, gives some real strength to the Southern slave interest in Congress in a way that had those slaves not been represented um, uh, for representation, it, it would not have happened. Um, but I think a, a really important point that Adam made is that language of persons. Frederick Douglass tirelessly made this argument that in all the places where the word slave or slavery could have been used in the original unamended constitution, the writers of that document deliberately chose to use different language. And so they very deliberately referred to the slave population as persons. And I think one thing that really bears out the importance of that is one of the readings we had was the Dred Scott decision. And in trying to make the case for a pro-slavery reading of the constitution, Taney points to the fugitive slave clause and he points to the, the importation clause. He avoids the three-fifths clause as much as he can because it actually contradicts the point he's trying to make, which is that slaves were not considered persons, they were considered property. You don't represent property, you represent persons. And so the three-fifths compromise actually undercuts the argument that Tawney's trying to make. And so I, I think that's something worth paying attention to. And Adam's exactly right to point out that language. It's just crucial. Yeah, I would, and I would just quickly add to that too, just uh, Federalist 54, I think, is a really, really crucial follow-up reading to this question also. It's uh, where Madison is wrestling with the three-fifths clause. And uh, of course, it's a very interesting Federalist essay in so many ways in terms of the style and presentation. But he explicitly deals with that conflict between being a person and being property in Federalist 54 in a really illuminating way. Um, and I think a way that, that points out and highlights that, that contradiction, implicit contradiction uh, in the discussion, in the discussion of the Constitutional Convention between, you know, are enslaved people people? Are they persons or are they property? And I mean, I think they're consistently treated as persons in the Constitution with that underlying contradiction in practice of treating them as property where they're enslaved in the, in the Southern uh, slave holding states. So Madison in Federalist 54 really wrestles with that in, a, in an illuminating way. I, I just actually taught Federalist 54 this week um, here at St. Vincent's and nice. I was pointing out to students that even there Madison has a hard time supporting um, the compromise in his own name. When asked about it, he says, well, it's, uh, it's favored by many of our Southern brethren. Um, he doesn't defend it in his own name. In fact, he's suggesting that uh, the Deep South would never sign on to this constitution with, without something like it. And so um, I just think that's fascinating. I often tell students, imagine if you're, you're praising something but not attaching your own name to it, why are you doing that? And uh, so just the rhetoric of 54 is fascinating to use in the classroom. Yeah, all very, very interesting points. Jay, so what you said about Roger Taney and the Dred Scott decision, that I think is still today, you guys correct me if I'm wrong about this, that's still the longest Supreme Court decision ever issued by the court. I believe certainly it's most infamous, but I think it's also has the record of being the longest. I don't know, but that's very plausible because it's extremely long. <laughs> it's extremely long, yeah. But uh, even in yeah. that entire long um, opinion uh, written by Roger Taney, he doesn't talk about the three-fifths clause very much at all, right? To make that case that the Constitution's a pro-slavery document, he talks a lot about the fugitive slave clause, a lot about the slave the slave trade clause, doesn't mention the three-fifths clause. That's yeah. strange. If the three-fifths clause really was a pro-slavery clause, you'd think Taney would mention it. Yeah. And then on the other hand, as you mentioned, right, Frederick Douglass, when he reads the Constitution, I think Douglass, yeah, he didn't like calling it the three-fifths clause. Douglass preferred to call it the two-fifths clause, 
right? Because it, he says it leans towards freedom. Even taken at its worst, it still leans towards freedom, which is so interesting and, and, and you know, may strike some of us as strange that right, Frederick Douglass, the former slave, right? The escaped slave uh, looks at the constitution and he doesn't see, at least later in his life, right? He changes his mind at one point in his life, but later in his life, the mature Douglas, the one who's writing in, during the Civil War and writing the, the, the documents that we have here before us, um, Douglas sees the Constitution as this great liberty anti-slavery document. I was just wondering if either one of you or, or both could, could comment on, on Douglas and, and, uh, and his thoughts on the Constitution. I'll, I'll just chime in real quick. Um... I think this piece that we read for, for this webinar in particular is fascinating because right out of the gate, he draws this distinction between the intentions of the folks who wrote the document, the intentions of the folks who were at the conventions, and then the text of the document itself, which is absolutely crucial because he, in some ways he's giving up to the other side, okay, perhaps we could find a slaveholder in this particular convention or someone with this motivation where three-fifths would um, line their pockets and aggrandize their power. He would say, well, Maybe we can concede something to that, but what we're talking about is the text of the document that they handed down that we received, the one that has been purged of any explicit reference to slaves or slavery, the one that um, does uh, count slaves as persons, the one that does give Congress the power to abolish the international slave trade after 20 years, right? There are all these things in the Constitution that the text suggests that there's um, a moment looking forward where slavery will be abolished. And so whatever one could suggest about the motivations of people who are at the convention or the motivations of slaveholders, what we're dealing with is the text itself. And so, Jason, I think you're exactly right. This famous, famous phrase that he mentions in several speeches that the Constitution is a glorious liberty document um, that when read properly, and you're exactly right, later in his career, this becomes a more full-throated defense, um, but that it's a glorious liberty document that actually points towards the end of slavery, not in any way towards the perpetuation of slavery. And so, uh, so much of these, these speeches that Douglas makes, especially as he becomes um, more confident in this argument, um, I think are all about how we interpret a text. And so for students of the Constitution, for students of constitutional law, how we interpret text, um, you can really do a lot worse than reading Frederick Douglas. It's fascinating. And, and um, he's also very creative in some ways. Uh, there's some things that maybe we could dispute, debate. I think his, his reading of the three-fifths clause is correct. I think his reading of, of um, the importation clause is spot on. The one that sometimes always strikes out to my students is this discussion that slavery is a bill of attainder. Um, we know in Article 1, Section 9 that bill of attainders are prohibited. Um, the idea that you would have sort of a summary conviction of large groups of people based on um, accidental characteristics, et cetera. I know legal scholars have disputed that, but it's something that Douglas often argued uh, in public, but, but I'll, I'll defer to Adam on some of these things. You know. Yeah, I think those are all great points. Uh, yeah, I think Jason's absolutely right that it's a brilliant reading that, that Douglas gives to the Constitution uh, in terms of separating out the text from the context. And, um, and I think that it makes sense, of course, because the Constitution uh, itself was written collectively uh, by people who disagreed with each other on many things, and particularly on the issue of slavery. Um, so it, it makes sense to look at the text of the Constitution as, as its own thing. In other words, they're you know, thinking about original intent, right? There, there was no single original intent with respect to slavery in, in the Constitution. Uh, the, that's, I think, the simple fact of the matter. There was disagreement about this. And so it, it all, all we can look to is the text itself. And I think on that point, I think Douglas makes an absolutely compelling argument that, that if you just look at the text itself, 
it clearly does contain principles and purposes that are opposed to slavery and doesn't do anything to uphold the existence of slavery. In fact, even to the point that, you know, there's a question whether the 13th Amendment was needed at, at all in terms of, uh, you know, do we need to amend the Constitution to outlaw slavery? I mean, really, no. And I think Douglas would, you know, makes a compelling argument on that point. The Constitution is is anti-slavery in, in the text um, itself. But I think that it's, I'm always, uh, you know, just I love teaching Frederick Douglass side by side with William Lloyd Garrison, because I find Douglass's arguments so compelling about the text of the Constitution. Uh, but then I also find Garrison's arguments so compelling about the context of the Constitution in many ways. Um, Garrison more, much more compelling than Justice Taney, for example. I think Taney just makes an obviously, uh, you know, flawed argument about the context and history of, uh, of the Constitution. Uh, but Garrison, not so much. I think Garrison, uh, he takes, of course, a very different reading of what the, of the Constitution, namely in terms of uh, the delegates to the convention and the opinions of the time and the, the Constitution in its sort of performative aspect, if you will, of forming a union. Um, and it's and it's just a different way of looking at it. I mean, you could say that Douglas is actually looking at the Constitution, whereas Garrison is looking at the circumstances surrounding the Constitution. But I love teaching those two side by side because I think they do both in their own way give very compelling arguments, but of course, uh, that point in exactly opposite directions. Yeah, those are all really great points. I, I really hope we get a chance to, to talk about Garrison more during the course of this, this webinar. But I'm, I'm noticing we're getting a lot of questions coming in uh, through the Q&A function here. So you know, folks, keep them coming. Um, maybe just to go back a little bit, because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a couple of questions dealing with um, sort of the, the context of the compromise and where that three-fifths number came from and what its aftermath was. So I want to try to maybe sum up a, or, or summarize a a couple of these questions um, and maybe combine them into, into one. So I, Jason, I know you mentioned that that three-fifths number was nothing new at the Constitutional Convention. It had actually been borrowed by the Articles of Confederation. But we have a question here about how they arrived at that three-fifths number in the original discussions during the Articles of Confederation. Then we also have another question about, well, what was the, what was the eventual outcome of the three-fifths clause? Um, it, did it prevent the South from attaining more political power or, or not? What, what, was the, what was the political impact then of the three-fifths clause, say maybe in, in, the first, in the first Congress? Yeah, I'll just get it started. I, 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 maybe Adam does know. I don't know a lot about the history of the, of, of the debate where that three-fifths number came about for this amend, proposed amendment to the Articles. It actually failed, by the way, that, that amendment, as I understand it. It was in the sort of the 11th hour of the Articles. Um, in terms of the uh, immediate and really long-term impact all the way into the 1850s, I, I think Adam said this earlier, I do think that the Three-Fifths Compromise um, aggrandized the power of the slaveholding South. Um, I do think that it gave them, um, in some ways, a leg up in Congress. And I think that um, if one is going to make the claim that there were compromises of slavery in the Constitution, that at least in what was hopefully perceived to be in the short term, but turned out to be longer term than they expected, the three-fifths compromise really did add to that problem. Um, it, it, it gave more voting power to the slave interest. And so I think it does eventually take uh, abolition, right? It takes the 13th and 14th amendments um, to, to, to remedy that problem. Um, there were folks who would argue, there you go, there's a smoking gun, right? To show that this is a constitution um, that is a pro-slavery document. But here we have to contend with Douglas's arguments. Think about what you have there. It is really a compromise. 
Should we think of it rather as a two-fifths? Should we focus on the fact that it refers to persons? Should we focus on the fact um, that it did at least in some ways um, moderate would have been moderate would have would have been even a, a, an even toothier uh, slave interest or slave power in the Congress. So it's very much a compromise, and like all compromises, um, I don't want to sound flippant, but there's a half full, half empty um, problem here that no compromise um, is going to give us exactly what we want. And so there is a real dark side um, to that compromise, and I think it helps, frankly, it le helps lead to the the slave uh, expansion crisis of the 1850s um, and eventually the Civil War. I don't know what you think, Evan. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Um, yeah, and I also don't know a lot about the background of how exactly three fifths was arrived at at the number in the um, in the original debates under the Articles of Confederation. I'm not yeah, I'm not sure how they arrived at that number. So that would be worth looking into more more deeply um, if if there's available evidence. I, I haven't really I haven't read anything about that either in right. terms of why three fifths as opposed to a half or some other fraction. Um, so that that is an interesting question. Um, yeah, and I do think that. Uh, yeah, if we're if we're talking about so rep representing persons rather than property in Congress, that was a, a question during the Constitutional Convention and prior, of course, and, and even following to some extent. But, um, you know, what what's represented or what should we represent in Congress, persons or property? And the decision that came out of the Constitutional Convention was, as Jason said, that we're representing persons. We're not representing property um, in the House of Representatives. Um, and of course, in the Senate, we're re representing states, right? But um, but so given that, I think it it is it is uh, easy to see the three fifths clause as a victory uh, for the southern states because of the fact that um, that you know the that enslaved people are not uh, they have no voting power, they have no influence, right, on the um, on on the political process. So why are they given? Uh, why are why are they given a you know share accounting you know in representation at all, um, and also the the taxation part of that clause was not really much of a counterbalance, so um, that didn't end up really being being a a weapon you know in the hands of of uh, of northern states or of the union um, in in curtailing the slave interest in in the south. So um, so I think Jason's right that historically and as it played out and the effects of the Constitution, the three fifths clause definitely. Did increase the power of the Southern slaveholding interests in Congress and was was an important benefit that they received. Um, but yeah, it is part of this debate during the Constitutional Convention of, of do we represent persons or property? And even though it comes out at the end that we represent persons, the three fifths clause is sort of a it, it doesn't fit well with that because uh, enslaved people are treated as kind of a mix mixture of the two, as Federal Fifty Four says. Um, so. Yeah, I just I just want to chime in too, just to make sure that we cover sort of the waterfront here. Um, at least in my experience, and shout me down if you think I'm wrong. A lot of folks who critique the three fifths compromise from our vantage point today often suggest that there's again the word we've used the word dehumanizing, but we should be clear about in what respect it's dehumanizing. Um, some people, I think, if you follow out that logic, for some folks, well, well, surely all slaves should be counted for representation. That would be humanizing. Well, think about what the net effect of that is. Then you're giving much more power to the slave interest to perpetuate slavery. The humanizing thing to do would be not to represent slaves in terms of proportionality for, for Congress, because then you would be depriving the slave interests of the very power they need to perpetuate slavery. And so I think there's often a profound misunderstanding of what the Three-Fifths Compromise is doing. I think the, the real critique would be not that slaves weren't counted. I think the critique should be the fact that they counted slaves at all. If you're suggesting that we want to be anti-slavery, 
then we shouldn't be representing slaves in any capacity, which is what many Northerners had said. I mean, remember, this is a compromise. There were many Northerners who said you should not represent slaves. They're not citizens. They don't vote. You said in every other respect, they're property. We don't represent hammers or wagons, right? On the other hand, you have the Southerners who, there's an irony here, who have for all the time said they're property and suddenly start suggesting these folks deserve to be counted for representation because they contribute to our community. They're part of, I mean, frankly, they're part of the people. And so you have this very strange argument going on that we, I think, in a lot of ways today misunderstand. The most humanizing thing to do would be not to count them at all in this particular context, which I think for some folks, they haven't quite thought that through yet, at least in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Jason. Just to, to chime in there, it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of situation in that way, right? Because either way, uh, either way, it's a problem, right? Either the text of the Constitution um, accurately represents the personhood of enslaved African Americans and thereby increases, you know, magnifies the practical power of slaveholders over their slaves, or um, you count, uh, you know, or you don't count them at all as persons for the for the sake of representation, and then that's you know symbolically dehumanizing because you're excluding them. But in this, in practice, in practice, that would of course, um, you know, favor the abolition, the anti-slavery uh, cause. So, uh, yeah, it's really there was no there was no uh, clear right way to handle this. I think practically in the Constitutional Convention. That's a fantastic point. It, it points to something that Adam brought up earlier, that when we're talking about a constitution, we're both talking about um, questions of principle and identity and how it comes to be understood, how we understand ourselves. But it's also a very practical political document that is being written at the time to address very real practical political problems and trying to, and, and I think a lot of times politics requires a kind of prudence and compromise that documents like that necessarily have to entail. Whereas when we're talking about identity, we're often in the realm of principle um, where um, I don't want to say we're not prudent in thinking about those principles that sometimes compromises with principle are perceived as being detrimental to identity and to truth and justice and, and dignity. Yeah. yeah, such a such a powerful point. I I, I think that um, if the three-fifths clause hadn't been ratified as it had been, that is to say, like let's say if the if the if there hadn't been a compromise, the northern states had just totally given into the southern states' demands to count the slaves as whole persons. Um, I think of the first Congress, then the, the southern slave states would have been the dominant force in that first Congress. Whereas with the three fifths clause, the northern free states are in the majority in that first Congress, which it's that first Congress that passes the Northwest Ordinance, right, which keeps slavery out of out of the territories, out of the future free states of Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio. So, so politically, the three-fifths clause, maybe at least initially, was able to um, limit slavery, keeping it from spreading into the territories. But it, it sounds like uh, it was the result of, as both of you gentlemen have mentioned, as a, a result of compromise, of, of prudence, of dealing with practical politics as it exists in the here and now, not as we, we wish it would exist. And so we we have a question just from from one member of our of our viewing audience here about sort of that that context. What is the context of slavery as it exists in the United States and the world at this time in 1787? Because slavery doesn't just exist in the United States; it it, it exists everywhere and has existed everywhere since the beginning of of time. How can we best distinguish between American slavery, this viewer asked, and other forms of slavery? Thinking about Right, Romans and, and other cultures. 
I'll, I'll start off that one. That's a big, a big question, um, an important question. So, um, so I, for one thing that uh, I think is relevant to this one point, uh, to this question that I often, often think about is um, in the convention debates on August 21st, that's one, you know, one of the readings for today's webinar, um, there's a line that Charles Pinckney of South Carolina uses, and he says, um, if slavery be wrong, it is justified by the example of all the world, right? Um, and so that, that explicitly becomes a part of the debates in the Constitutional Convention about, uh, I mean, about the, the wrongness of slavery. Um, and I think it's true, as, as Lincoln said later, uh, noticed later, that, that nobody argued that slavery was a positive good in the Constitutional Convention or at the time. Nobody argued that it was a good thing. Uh, but the furthest they argued was what Pinkney argues, namely that uh, it's everywhere and uh, and it's you know it's it's been around throughout human history, um, and I think that in a way I, I, that's true, of course, um, but also in the American context, that history and that sort of this is the way we've always done things really ran up against the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Just in it, just ran into a brick wall. And, um, and I think that was, the, that was the real problem, or at least that was a big part of the problem, uh, is that, that that brick wall had not been there in the same way in human history in the past and in other parts of the world, that we have this principle that now is explicitly and directly opposed to this practice. Um, so I think that's the, the first thing to notice, and that the Southern delegates really don't, don't get. And at the, at the very beginning of that August 21st uh, uh, debate about the slave trade clause too, you have this really illuminating exchange between Luther Martin of Maryland and John Rutledge of South Carolina, uh, where Rutledge, so Martin brings up the, the moral point about slavery, among other points. Um, and then Rutledge says, you know, interest is, is the governing principle with nations, right? It's not religion or morality, it's interest. Um, and that always brings me, I think it's a microcosm of the, of the Melian dialogue, if, if you're familiar with that, right? The ancient Greek, the Peloponnesian War, right? Athens and Milos and it's exactly that all over again, that uh, we're not talking about morality, we're talking about interest. So I think that the problem was in the American context, at least a big part of the problem, was that the early American founders for the first time in human history as they're founding a nation, they really care about moral principle. They really, really care about it. At least many of them do and think that we've got to found our government on moral principle, namely the principles in the declaration. And so now you've got this issue where, yeah, you have this universal human practice, but at the same time, it's directly opposed to the principles we're trying to found our government on. So, um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question and point, and I think it it really does speak to the importance of the American experiment in many ways. There's absolutely no way I can improve on that. That was fantastic. I'll just I'll just add a couple little things. Uh, you mentioned the Millian dialogue. I was thinking a bit about uh, Socrates and Thrasymachus and the Republic, or the Lincoln-Douglas debates, because they're actually all sort of sniffing around the same territory. Um, the thing that occurred to me in, in thinking about context, I was going to mention, you know, the, the expectation on the part of many of the founders, including Jefferson himself and many of the signers of the Declaration, that eventually the principles of the Declaration would impress themselves upon the minds of even the slaveholders, so that we would have voluntary emancipation with the consent of the slaveholders. Look at Jefferson's uh, queries and notes on the state of Virginia, or his description of trying for Virginia trying to abolish uh, their own uh, uh, importation of slaves um, uh, and with the, the crown uh, vetoing that. Um, there's an expectation that slavery eventually, I think, uh, will be strangled in the places where it exists and die a natural death. And of course, we know that's not economically how it happened into the 1820s, 1830s, 
uh, the cotton crop becomes ridiculously profitable um, due to innovations of technology. And it's no accident. That's when you start to see for the first time in American history, a full-throated argument that slavery is a positive good from Calhoun and Fitzhugh and, and many others. It's an innovation. And, and what's interesting, the readings we have today, some of the readings we looked at for this morning, they speak to that. If you notice, Tawney suggests that the opinions of Americans about slavery are improving since the time of the founding. That's precisely the opposite of what Lincoln and Frederick Douglass would argue, which is to say, no, actually, we've become less enlightened. What we've done is dug in our heels to defend an institution that the framers themselves understood was a maybe at the time a necessary evil, but nonetheless an evil and never a positive good. And so there's, and we're talking about context, there's a change in opinions that are happening. And one of the best places to read about that is, is just reading the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I think Lincoln really gets at this probably better, uh, better than anyone. Um, and there too, they bring up the idea, is this simply a matter of interest or are we talking here about a matter of natural right? And to the extent that we recognize interest as part of what motivates us in politics, how do we understand that that can never be the sole principle of, of the American regime because we're dedicated to a notion of natural right that's there in that declaration. And so um, I think context, again, these changing opinions about the intrinsic evil or goodness of slavery is part of what has been developing from, you know, into the, from the 1760s all the way up until the 1850s. Uh, yeah, and I would just add another quick note to that in terms of further reading. Um, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, his chapter on the three races at the end of volume one of Democracy in America, I think is, is really great on this point about context for uh, American practices of, uh, of enslavement and then also treatment of Native Americans. He, he gives a, a really great uh, explanation of the historical context and, um, and of the just the tensions and the contradictions and the, the the difficulties that uh, exist in the United States in the uh, early 19th century with respect to, to slavery. I think Tocqueville's really good on that. So if you uh, look at that too, that gives some important um, background. Just one final point on that. Um, you know, the, the original question was thinking a bit about the history of slavery, slavery in the world. And, and one thing about Pinckney's comments and some of later um, Calhoun's comments and others often in the US Congress, um, they would mention Aristotle, they would mention the Bible, they would talk about the Greeks, the Romans, but sometimes there's a conflation there of ancient conventional slavery as you would have it in the ancient world, which usually was the product of you being conquered in war. It was not a uh, chattel slavery that we experienced in modernity, and so there are two very different forms of slavery. In that ancient form, you could often buy your way out, um, you could eventually uh, be released from slavery, it was all conventional, it was about circumstance bad luck perhaps, but you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, whereas with regard to chattel slavery, we have arguments there about eventually about the supposed natural inferiority uh, of a race of people and that they were better off being enslaved than they would be being free. Um, and that's very different than what we see. So there's there's a bit of a, a loose argument on the part of these slavery apologists into the 1840s, 1850s. Yeah, and actually, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Jason, because that, that's right. And that's something Coco mentions too. I mean, the there are differences and uh, distinctive features of American slavery as well relative to other slavery historically and elsewhere around the world that uh, particularly yeah, the chattel component and also the, the race-based components, the racialized slavery that, uh, that is not uh, ubiquitously the case in human history and around the world. And that makes it, uh, makes it you know, such that the conflict is even more intense because you have a particularly tenacious form of slavery, I think, in the American case that runs up against a, of course, particularly tenacious moral principle 
And so that just dramatizes the conflict and the contradiction all the more because on both sides, uh, you have very strong versions of the of either pole of that tension. Really, really interesting stuff. You you both mentioned the the slave trade clause, and I know a couple of our documents uh, deal with that. We're getting some questions in about the the slave trade clause, so maybe we can go back and let me let me read the slave trade clause. And I'd just like to, to have you, you gentlemen comment on this and how we ought to understand this. Is this a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery clause? So this is Article 1, Section 9, Clause 1. The Constitution says this, the migration or importation of such persons, there's that word persons again, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808 but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. How should we understand that? What is that saying? How should we understand that clause of the Constitution? I'll, I'll just get us started. It, again, not to sound flippant, but it's again back to the half full, half empty. Um, and depending on how you want to read it. Uh, so what the clause is saying, right, is that Congress shall not, Congress is prohibited for the next 20 years, right, essentially for the next 20 years, from prohibiting the importation of slaves from overseas, right? So the international slave trade, this is not about domestic slavery, not about anything internal, it's about importation of slaves. And so going back um, as far as we can, looking at the history of the colonies into the articles, into the framing of the constitution, anyone who ever suggested that we might want to wean the country off of the institution of slavery would understand, first you cut off the supply. Um, we see this, um, as I said before, in Jefferson's summary view of the rights of British America, there's a statement about this. And across the colonies, this conversation is happening. And so first, you have to cut off the supply. Of course, we see in the, um, in the um, uh, notes on the convention uh, that many Southern delegates, of course, are not going to go for this. We understand that the perpetuation of our economic interest depends upon further importation. We don't want limitations of this kind. So what do you have, right? You have a group of people who want to suggest we need to be able to cut off the supply of slaves from Africa, another group saying we want to maintain it. Um, what do you do? You strike a compromise. This is another compromise. And essentially, as I understand it, you're suggesting we're going to give the deep Southern slave interests, especially 20 years to prepare themselves for a very simple fact. As soon as Congress has the power to prohibit the international slave trade, they're going to do so. They're given the power to do it. What makes it tricky is it's in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, which is actually a statement of the limitations on Congress's power. Section 8 is the one on the grants of power. So what do you do? You sneak into what is ostensibly a statement of limitations that it is a limitation, but only for 20 years. After 20 years, it has the potential to become a positive grant of power. If you read it a little bit differently, you suggest it's not a denial of power. It's a grant to say in 20 years, Congress shall have the power to abolish the international slave trade. And that's precisely what they did. I mean, as soon as the clock strikes, that legislation had been drawn up and ready to go. They pass it the second they are constitutionally enabled to pass it. And so here's a good example of how do we want to read the Constitution? This is very much a Douglas versus Taney sort of problem here. Um, Taney looks at it and says, there clearly is evidence for a pro-slavery reading of the Constitution. By the way, Garrison makes the same argument. Garrison and Taney actually are in fundamental agreement on the pro-slavery nature of the supposed pro-slavery nature of the Constitution. They just disagree as to whether it's a good or bad thing. Garrison and Taney read it as a, as a pro-slavery uh, pro provision. Douglas, on the other hand, says, no, this is actually empowering Congress to begin the process 
of weaning the country off of slavery. So it's, again, it depends on how you read it. I, just showing my hand, I tend to read it rather than a limitation as a delayed grant of power um, to Congress. And I'm, I'm echoing things. I, that's not me. I learned that from Frederick Douglass. Um, but Adam, I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, I, I think those are all great points. And yeah, it is, um, it's interesting that it's a prohibition of a prohibition, right? And so it's, it's just a very convoluted, of, of all this, the slavery clauses, so to speak, in the Constitution, it's, it's perhaps the most convoluted in that way and hard to interpret. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you can, you can read it clearly either way, um, which is to say, I think ultimately that Douglas's reading and Lincoln's is ultimately too, is correct that it's um, on its face and in, in the text itself, it's at least neutral and perhaps an anti-slavery uh, part of the, of the Constitution. That said, I mean, Madison, in his notes, you know, at the end of that discussion in August, he he expresses, you know, grave uh, concern about that clause, right, and what it and what it expresses. Um, so maybe Madison would disagree with Douglas. I don't know, but Frederick um, Douglas. But um, I think also, so it's interesting. I mean, the, the slave trade. Uh, there are other dimensions to this as well. So uh, one thing is that um, in the history of the transatlantic uh, slave trade, uh, only four percent of the uh, of the people kidnapped in Africa and brought over across the ocean uh, arrived directly in North America. It's four percent. But by the time of the Civil War in 1860, two thirds of the enslaved Africans in the Western Hemisphere were in the United States. Two thirds, over 60 percent, 66 percent or so. Um, and so what that speaks to is the domestic increase of the enslaved population in the United States and. Um, and that, of course, is one, one dimension of why Virginians like Jefferson were okay, at least, with cutting off the slave trade, right? Because their domestic enslaved population was increasing just fine, and, uh, and so they didn't need it, right? It was South Carolina and Georgia, North Carolina, maybe to some extent, that still, still you know, needed it or thought they needed it. Um, so there's that dimension to it as well. Um, but... Um, and that I think is a fact of, of immense importance, the way that slavery grew in the United States, the enslaved population grew in the United States through, uh, you know, through uh, reproduction, right, rather than through importation. I think that created a dynamic in the United States that's different from the dynamic in South America and Central America in many ways. Uh, but I do think that in terms of the meaning of the clause, I think that uh, by sort of really tripping over itself to refer to enslaved African-Americans as persons again, um, in an even more convoluted way than it had in the three-fifths clause, um, and by cutting it off, you know, at the source, as Jason says, I think that that those are anti-slavery uh, thrusts to that clause, and so um, so I think that that reading is plausible. That's really really good. Uh, what one thing I noticed when reading through the Constitution, Madison's convention notes, which was one of our readings for today. Uh, early in August, when this issue of the slave trade is first introduced, right, so the Committee on Detail, right, they submit a document that originally would have prohibited Congress or anybody else from interfering with the slave trade forever. And you see the delegates from South Carolina, especially, but also North Carolina, Georgia, digging in their heels saying, like, this is a line in the sand. We're not giving this up it will never be prohibited. The slave trade will never be prohibited and will never consent to anything but that. If you try to change that, we're out. We're leaving the union. The, that's the end of, of the compromise. In other words, there will be no compromise on this issue. So what they do is, right, they send it to a committee 
right? And this other committee gets together and they come up with a compromise. They come up with a proposal that is 1800. Congress can't interfere with the slave trade until the year 1800. And now the Southern delegates say, give us 1808 and you've got a deal, right? Now they're, they're, willing, they're willing to compromise. You, right, you, you, that's the result. That's how the slave trade issue in the Constitution comes to be the year that it is, 1808. It's that 20-year gap that the Southern delegates agree to when earlier in the month they said, we won't agree to any sort of an end date. That to me is sort of in, incredible that through some political maneuvering that is that is able to happen. I'm just wondering if any of you could could comment on on that. Yeah. Yeah. Th yeah. Thanks. That's that's fascinating. And that's that's a good a good way of describing it. I think that and that, that speaks to uh, the general dynamic on a number of the compromises in the Constitution and particularly these ones over slavery, which is the uh, the the kind of do we call the bluff right of the southern states when they say they're going to actually leave over this. Um, are they going to actually leave and not sign, not, you know, not be part of the, the Constitutional Convention anymore? And, and there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And there's a lot of uncertainty. And, um, and I think it's, in a way, it's evidence that you, that you could call the bluff of the Southern states, that they back down from the, the position of you can never, you know, that there has to be a prohibition on abolishing the slave trade, you know, totally. Um, and then they do back off from that. And so I think some delegates, some anti-slavery delegates are thinking, They'll back, they'll back off completely, or you know, if we just call their bluff and push it, they'll still join the union, uh, even if we even if we we push it as far as we can. Uh, but then of course, you know, that's that's uh, it's uncertain. Uh, they might have actually left, and they're they're certainly adamant about the fact that they would, you know, South Carolina and Georgia, the delegates. So um, so it's a it's it's a really delicate situation, and um, and it does speak to the need for prudence and compromise. Um, but it also does, you know, open up these interesting historical counterfactuals. You know, what, what if they had, the anti-slavery delegates had pushed further and tried to call the bluff of the Southern states? Uh, what would have happened? It's, of course, we'll never know. Well, with a little hindsight, we know that South Carolina had been drawing lines in the sand for a long time. Um, and so Adam's exactly right that um, navigating that over a, a long history um, in terms of the, what is the Deep South willing to do with regard to compromises. Um, and so I don't know enough about the going into the bargaining process there of saying absolutely no restriction whatsoever if that's where you begin knowing that you're going to chip away at that eventually or if that is, this, you know, I'm sure on the parts of some it's very sincere on the parts of others I'm sure they're they're willing to give a little. And so I'm, I'd be interested in reading more and learning more Jason about that about that negotiation. That's really helpful. Yeah. And I think I think Madison was in favor of getting rid of the slave trade immediately. He wanted it abolished right away, right? So you see these, right? You've got all these different sorts of human beings with different interests, different opinions, and you're trying to carve out, right? A governing document that they can all or mostly all agree to. And the fact that it happened is, as Madison says, as Hamilton says, is a miracle. Yeah, I'm thinking of, um, this is maybe just a little touch off topic, but I'm thinking things like Federal's paper um, of 37, where Madison suggests that we're trying to preserve all these good things and trying to create a constitution at the end of the day is necessarily a compromised political document. And so the beauty of it is that it can be changed, et cetera. The beauty of it is that it can, we want it to endure, uh, but cut us some slack in terms of what we've not given you here is a treatise of political philosophy. What you've given you here is a political document. Constitutions are political documents. And so they're necessarily full of compromises. They're necessarily going to speak to some of these imperfections and these various interests and viewpoints um, and trying to make something that we can actually use to govern. And I think that's one thing where when we're, we're thinking about the Constitution on a thing like Constitution Day and some of the compromises it's made, 
we have to keep that in mind that it's ultimately a political document and part of what our, our politics has always been um, is trying to engage in politics with a you know shared dedication to that constitution but recognizing sometimes it's going to be a little messy yeah and in that way just to point out i mean that's one one way in which the constitution as a document is different from the declaration of independence as a document of course, the Declaration, to some extent, was a compromise document as well, as we know from Jefferson's draft and the issue of slavery there. But more so, the Declaration was a statement of principle, right? Not, not a governing political document. And so um, that's an important difference between the, the two documents and um, opens up, of course, you know, the, the huge interesting question of to what extent the Constitution as a, as a, uh, as a political document reflects the principle of, principles of the Declaration and to what extent there's some kind of tension there. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's a really important point, as especially as we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of the uh, Declaration of Independence here pretty soon, right? So that's another another uh, occasion to reflect on uh, the difference between those two documents. Yeah, on the the point regarding right the necessity of for political compromise for prudence, um, the Constitution as an act of statesmanship. Um, we have a lot of questions coming in about William Lloyd Garrison, who, of course, is not a fan or who doesn't seem to be a fan of compromise, at least when it comes to slavery. Right. So his right, his famous line about no compromise with slavery, no union with slaveholders. So when Garrison hears the argument, well, if we don't make these certain compromises with slavery, the union will fall apart and the southern states will leave. We don't want that. Garrison's response is why not? Slavery is such a gross evil, a violation of the rights of man, that it, it can never be tolerated. So Garrison's solution, as we see in this, this document from Garrison on the Constitution and Union, is if the Southern states threaten to leave, let them leave. We ought not to make compromises with slavery, because then that, that taints us with the sin of slavery. There can be no compromise with such an evil thing like slavery, which I think was one of the points we, we started this webinar out on, is acknowledging that, that great evil. Uh, what are we to think of Garrison, especially in terms of his relationship with, with Frederick Douglass? I was wondering if what, one of you or both of you could, could speak to that, because we've gotten some, a lot of great questions coming in about the nature of Douglass's and Garrison's relationship. So, for example, uh, was there disagreement over this idea of whether or not the Constitution was a pro or an anti-slavery document? Was that the cause of the breakup between Douglass and Garrison, or was there, there more going on there? Adam, I know you brought this up earlier. You might you might want to get us started, and I'll chime in if I can help it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, yes. I think that's really it's really fascinating, fascinating uh, question. Um, yeah. What to make of Garrison? Garrison's relationship with Douglas. I think that so Garrison, what he does is he conflates the Constitution with its effects, or the constitutional text with the with the constitutional union. Um, so I mentioned that before. I think what Douglas's brilliant uh, point. Well, distinction was, you know, between the Constitution as a text and the Constitution's context or its effects or its historical circumstances. I think that's what led to Douglas's uh, ultimate disagreement with Garrison was that Garrison failed to make that distinction, and Douglas thought that distinction was important. And I think he was right that that's important. Um, but I think where Garrison really did have a compelling insight was in looking at at the Constitution in its in its effects, right? Not in its text, but in its effects, namely that. If there's going to be a constitutional union between non between anti-slavery and and uh, slaveholding uh, elements, 
that that is going to necessitate some level of cooperation and implication uh, by those who are anti-slavery um, in, the, in the institution of slavery itself. So there are all sorts of ways in which this happens and Garrison sort of uh, relates some of those in this uh, excerpt that we have. Um, but, uh, but I think that's where Garrison is most compelling, not on his reading of the constitution itself and the text of the constitution, but on the, what the constitutional union means for Northern states and for anti-slavery people and for what the effects of the constitution will be. Um, and so one example of this uh, that, that just struck me recently is uh, you know, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, right? So um, you have John Brown trying, trying you know, violently, trying to abolish slavery, um, trying to, to do something that will lead to uh, the abolition of slavery. And uh, you have the, the power of the federal government, led, you know, led, troops led by Robert E. Lee, coming in to put down that attempt, that attempt at abolishing slavery through violent means. Um, and if it weren't for uh, those, those troops, those federal troops, it's unclear what would have happened, right? How successful John Brown could have been. Um, and, and perhaps he could have affected the abolition of slavery ultimately, uh, or the emancipation of many more enslaved people. Um, and so, so thinking of instances like that, I, you, know, you can see Garrison's point that even if the constitutional text itself is, is not pro-slavery or is anti-slavery in some ways, the union that, that results from the Constitution is, in, is implicated in slavery in various ways. And I think that's, that's what Garrison is really upset about, is, is that uh, effect and that implication of the Northern states and anti-slavery states in, uh, in, in slavery. And there, I think he does have a valid point. I'll just add a couple points. I, on, in the piece we read from, from Douglas, he mentions the Garrisonians. And one thing that Douglas does in that piece is draws a distinction between the government and the Constitution. And I think part of his concern is that many of the abolitionists are conflating the two. Adam kind of spoke to this, but he says, um, why should we assume that if the government has somehow become rotten, that the Constitution is necessarily rotten? In fact, what they're doing is misadministering or misinterpreting that very Constitution. So the solution is not to be indifferent to or even hostile to Constitution and Union. It's to make sure that we elect office holders that read them the way that they ought to be read. And so he gets into this whole notion of, again, constitutional interpretation. And to me, that's really interesting because where does he wind up? He does it a bit here in this piece, Douglas, but it's a direct response to Garrison. Um, but it's also in the famous speech a lot of us read and teach, um, um, What to the Slaves is the Fourth of July, um, with the famous Rochester Address, where Douglas argues that what's happened is that the North, and especially Garrisonian abolitionists, have allowed themselves or allowed the South to impose upon them a novel pro-slavery reading of the Constitution. They've given up too much to the slave interest to give them the Constitution, that the Constitution is actually part of the arsenal arguing against slavery. And so um, it's really fascinating. It suggests this pro-slavery reading of the Constitution, you really didn't see it at the time of the founding. It's actually emerged as the South has begun to dig in their heels and people in the 1830s. And so what Garrison and the gang have done is actually given up too much to the other side. They've conceded um, this part of what should be part of the battle. And so um, I think all of Adam's points are well made, but that really stood out to me as part of that falling out between the two is largely, a, and, and, and that too, it's about how to read the Constitution, but also if we're talking about statesmanship and prudence, um, one could argue that, that Douglas would say there is more prudence and more statesmanlike behavior from the point of view of certain political actors, even if they're not office holders, um, to recognize that there's a certain um, 
um, extremism that comes with throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that Douglas sees that. And I think he shares that with Lincoln. And that's part of why we see so many similar passages on this between Douglas and Lincoln. Um, what is the famous line that, that Lincoln suggests that if we didn't take the good that we could get in 1787, we would have sacrificed the whole. And one point that, that Douglas makes in response to people like Garrison and Lincoln makes the same point is, if you are really dedicated to abolishing slavery from the face of the earth, the worst thing you could do is let the Southern states go be an empire of slavery to the south of your border. If you don't have a powerless, vigorous, energetic national government, you are never going to abolish slavery in any capacity whatsoever. And so the cause of emancipation is wrapped up with the cause of the union for Douglas. And I don't think that's the case at all um, with Garrison. I think it's a, a short-sighted reading in my case, taking nothing away from um, many of the points that Adam made. There, there's a certain plausibility to some of these things. And I certainly understand some of these arguments and, and they come from a, a, a noble position, but I think ultimately politically, um, they're pretty problematic. Yeah, I think, and that's a great point about uh, yeah, Douglas's distinction between the government and the constitution. I think that was another really good distinction. And, um, and, and I think we see that, of course, in the way Lincoln uses the constitution in uh, justifying and waging the civil war, right? That um, the same constitution, the constitutional union and the powers of the constitutional union that were used to put down John Brown's raid in Harper's Ferry, those same powers are used to fight against the seceding uh, Southern states in the Civil War. So, uh, so Lincoln, you know, in, in Lincoln's hands, right, the Constitution uh, becomes an anti-slavery document in a way just because he uses his executive power to, uh, to, to wage the Civil War, right? Um, so, you know, maybe that's a, it's not as, as satisfying of, a, of an answer to, you know, how, how do we tell if the Constitution is anti-slavery or pro-slavery, but at the end of the day, to my mind, I think one of the most powerful arguments for the anti-slavery nature of the Constitution is that Lincoln uses his constitutional power to, to wage the Civil War and to defeat uh, the South. I mean, which is, uh, you know, it's tragic and it's unfortunate, but, um, but that, that I think is when the question is finally, in a way, decided. Yeah, those are all, those are really, really good points. And I, I, I think I remember hearing that Douglas and, and Garrison's relationship also deteriorated over time because Douglas thought Garrison was taking advantage of him, that he was being used as a political uh, sideshow where Garrison would bring Frederick Douglass out, the former slave, and, and Douglas came to, to resent that. But I think he resented more, right, this, this iron grip that Garrison held onto this pro-slavery constitution which is you gentlemen of every mark, you sort of, you know, to, it, you can see it in that way, but that's really just a surface reading like, well, okay, the founders owned slaves. They didn't outlaw slavery in the constitution. The constitution made certain compromises with slavery. Therefore it was a, a pro-slavery document. But as we're finding out, as we go through this webinar and this fantastic conversation, there's a lot more than just that surface level reading. In fact, once you get a little bit below the surface, you, you begin to see Right, how complex, complicated the situation is, and how the, the Constitution really does begin to emerge as it did for Douglas. Right, the more he studies the Constitution, the more he comes to realize, oh my gosh, this is not a pro slavery document, this is a glorious liberty document, a glorious anti slavery document. You just have to go back to the original primary sources and, 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 read, uh, and read, the, read the documents and read them, read them carefully. We're, we're quickly running out of time here. We've got, a, we've got a question here from one of the members of our, uh, our viewing audience. 
uh, who asked about uh, that constitutional convention. Uh, this question asked uh, that the early conflict at the convention seemed to be between large states and small states. In fact, in many of our, our college and high school textbooks, we're told that was, that was the real division at the constitutional convention, large states versus small states. But this person asked, wasn't it really more about northern free states and, and southern slave states? Wasn't that the real division at the Constitutional Convention? Yeah, I'll jump in first to this one. I yeah, so that, that's a great, a great question, great point. So um, there's there's actually on my reading of the uh, Madison's notes on the convention debates, it seems that there's a moment in the during the course of the convention when a shift happens. Um, initially, the, the main division is between the large states and the small states. Madison is at pains at, you know, throughout that early part of the convention to uh, dissuade the delegates from that position, to show them that it's, that it's not uh, true, that in other words, there aren't interests that unite small states as such and large states as such, and that therefore it's really a false division to be making. So Madison makes that argument over and over again during the convention and makes it, I think, really, really well. But then part of that argument that Madison makes, and at one point, I forget what the date is of, that, that, that this happens, but Madison says in, in one of his speeches on this that, no, the division that's most uh, relevant and maybe most um, important is not between large states and small states. It's actually between Southern states and Northern states or between uh, slaveholding states and non-slaveholding states. That's, that's the real... Uh, division of interests that that um, that is is operative here. So uh, so Madison himself, I think, you know, on my reading, affects in some ways that transition in the constitutional convention between the large state, small state to the free state, slave state discussion. Um, whether or not you know what he's doing there, I think there's some debate about that. What his motivations are, and what whether he has other motivations, or whether he just sort of you know notices that, and then it becomes an important division, but it's a really interesting moment in transition in the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, I think all that's exactly right. And Adam's forgotten more about Madison's notes than I'll ever know, so I'll defer to him. But I'll just say, it strikes me that um, it strikes me that an either or here might be a, 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 a poor way of thinking about it, that um, there certainly are issues with regard to, um, to large states, small states, and certain interests that would still be relevant things like apportionment, how we structure the Congress, et cetera. But to deny the the absolutely um, uh, monumental uh, influence of the slave interest and how and, and non-slave interest, how that affects that debate would be, we'd be naive um, to downplay that. But I think um, maybe getting into an either or situation might be, might be unwise. We are, we are quickly running out of time here. We're down to our, our final five, five minutes or so. So I, I'd, I'd like to uh, just very quickly, uh, get your thoughts on this last part of the Constitution that deals with slavery, the, the Fugitive Slave Clause. Um, let, me, let me read this to you. This is uh, Article uh, 4, uh, Section 2, Clause 3. No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. The famous, the infamous fugitive slave clause. How, what does that say and how ought we to understand that clause? Is that pro-slavery or anti-slavery? 
I'll just get started. I, I, I'm echoing here a, a, a scholar that we all have read and studied over the years, uh, Harry Jaffa, who, who once argued he was a tireless defender of the, the glorious liberty document version of the Constitution. And he very frequently argued that this might be the toughest nut to crack for that argument, that the Fugitive Slave Clause, um, that, that any, um, any slave that would escape into free territories, uh, the, that, that the free, escape into a northern state, that state is duty bound to return that slave up back to an owner. Um, this is a protection of slavery, many people would argue. Um, now, we've got persons, it's not property, There's, there are many small victories here in the language, but this is one that if we know anything about the debates of the 1850s, what's really motivating Douglas and Garrison in some of these speeches, it's the slave codes at the time that are being passed by Congress to give teeth to what is underspecified in the Constitution. We know we have this so-called fugitive slave clause, how is that enforced? Like a lot of clauses in the Constitution, Congress has to pass laws to bring those things into effect and give them teeth. And so what's really being debated over the future slave codes is the relative um, harshness of them. And so increasingly, especially because you have this Southern interest in Congress that has this leg up in voting, they're demanding um, more vigorous uh, national protection with regard to what they see as slave property so that individuals who had been um, uh, accused of being escaped slaves, maybe you had no recourse to any kind of uh, claim to rebut the claim that you are. It's like maybe you're a free man, you've been living as a free man, you've been kidnapped. And you say, no, I'm not an escaped slave, I'm a free man. Well, you have no access to representation, um, the fines themselves or the, the way in which you're treated uh, for the people who are the ones harboring a slave or made harsher. And this is what Douglas, Garrison, Lincoln, all through the 1850s, that's really part of what they're arguing over. And so if even if you look at some of the debates going on within the South, between or say the Northern Democrats and the more firebrand Southern Democrats, they're arguing over the relative harshness of these slave codes. And many in the South wanted a much more vigorous um, federal power um, to actually, as much as we talk about states' rights, many of the Southern states wanted a huge expansion of federal power with regard to enforcing the future slave laws. And so that's what's really bubbling that's causing a lot of what um, the South is calling agitation from the abolitionists. It's fighting over the future slave codes. And so I would argue that in the Constitution, um, that might be the toughest place to make this claim of a glorious liberty document because it leads directly to these debates about how um, kidnapped individuals are treated. Um, so it's it's a really fascinating uh, part of the argument. Adam, I don't know what you think, if you agree with that or disagree with that. But. Yeah, no, I think, Jason, I think you basically covered everything I, I would have said. So I agree. I agree with all that. I think those are great points. Um, yeah, I, I wish we could extend this by two hours and just keep talking for a long time. But I, I would just add to that. Yeah, I think uh, everything you said, I agree with. Um, that this clause, it really is in some ways the toughest uh, from, from the anti-slavery point of view. Um, it partly because it's, it's the part of the constitution that, that backs up Garrison's reading the most of complicity of the Northern states in slavery, right? The Northern states have to be in some sense cooperative and complicit in enforcing uh, slavery for, for the union to work. So it does kind of, it gives the most support to a Garrisonian kind of reading in some ways. Um, as you mentioned, the 1850 uh, fugitive slave law in particular was was egregiously uh, unfair and terrible in many ways. And that's a law, right? It's not the Constitution, but it's a law passed uh, to enforce this constitutional provision, you know, that among other things provides um, $5 to a judge who finds a accused enslaved African-American um, to be innocent or not a slave and $10 if he finds that they're actually a slave. So, I mean, just things like that that are just ridiculous and that's in that law. Um, and it precipitates the Civil War in many ways because it, it opens the prospect of the nationalization of slavery 
um, as also happens in the Dred Scott decision, that now people in the northern states and abolitionists and anti-slavery advocates are realizing uh, slavery is, is becoming more nationalized or could become more nationalized. And that is a big factor for Lincoln as well in, in making slavery the centerpiece of his, uh, of his political career. All right. Well, thank you to you both. I mean, we're, we're out of time here, although I do want to just end here with one final question for both of our panelists uh, for the benefit of our, our audience. If you could recommend one or two books, uh, reading recommendations for those interested in learning more about this subject, what, uh, what books would you recommend? Adam, you want to start? That's always a hard question because there's so many books, but yeah. Well, yeah, a good recent one. I mean, yeah, there's so many great ones. I mean, a good recent one is uh, is uh, Wilentz's No Property in Man. Um, that that I think is a really good um, good reflection on on this topic. Yeah, and some of these issues, once we start getting into um, um, for the, the as this leads to the 1850s and the Civil War, I still think Harry Joppa's Crisis: The House Divided on the Lincoln Douglas Debates gets at so many of these issues about how we understand slavery in the Declaration, how we understand slavery in the Constitution. Also, Fehrenbacher's book on Dred Scott is still a classic. I think people should really take a look at. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for those book recommendations and for a fantastic conversation this morning. Thanks to our panelists uh, as well as to all of you, uh, our participants, for some great questions. Uh, if you did not have a chance to take the professional development poll at the beginning of this webinar, uh, would you please do so now? Uh, this feedback really, really helps us to make decisions regarding the types of PD opportunities that we offer uh, for, for teachers. And so we're going to sit back for about 30 seconds here. You'll see on your screen that survey has popped up again. Please take 30 seconds to fill that out, and uh, we'll come back to you in just 30 seconds. All right, thank you very much. As a reminder, within the next week, you will be receiving an email that will include links to today's readings, suggested further readings on today's topic, and a link to the archived webinar. We hope you will share this information with your colleagues as well as on social media. If you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course in our MAG program, our Masters of Arts in American History and Government, uh, all three of us teach in that program. It's uh, really one of the, the best experiences of my career, if not the greatest experience of my career, to be able to, to work not just with colleagues like, like Jason and Adam, but to work with, uh, with our fantastic teachers uh, in the classroom, reading these great texts and having these sort of conversations like what you saw uh, this morning. You can find more information about online course offerings, uh, as well as many other resources for teachers, students, uh, at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org. Uh, this is the first episode of American Controversies. Our program will return on October 1st, which I think is in two weeks, uh, when the discussion will focus on the 14th Amendment. We'll deal with another 
uh, conversation, another series of documents on the meaning and importance of the 14th Amendment. Uh, thank you uh, again for being here. We hope to see you all uh, next week, uh, and we look forward to the next conversation. Uh, Jason, Adam, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you uh, out there viewing us online. We'll see you next. We'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on slavery and the Constitution. For more information on our webinars, in-personal educator professional development programs, free document library, and graduate program, please visit us at tah.org.